Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. I'm your reader, Denise. From the front page, Dostal to be appointed as Cedar Rapids Police Chief. He was the only candidate, internal candidate, among four finalists by Marissa Payne, Cedar Rapids Gazette. After 11 months without a permanent police chief in a nationwide search, David Dostal, the only finalist from within the Cedar Rapids Police Department, is slated to be appointed as the local police force's next leader. City Manager Jeff Pomerantz will seek the consent of the Cedar Rapids City Council at its noon meeting today to appoint Dostal, 56, as police chief. He succeeds Wayne German, who retired last April after aging out of his certification when he turned 66 years old and signing a severance agreement with the city. The appointment is not final until the nine-member council approves it. David stood out thanks to his extensive background and experience across all law enforcement. His long track record of leadership focused on building strong community partnerships and the respect he has earned within the department, city organization, and throughout our community, Pomerant said in a statement. I am confident he will do a phenomenal job as our next chief of police. The city tapped the International Association of Chiefs of Police and worked with the Cedar Rapids Civil Service Commission to narrow the pool of 17 applications to four finalists for the position. The association used community feedback to create a candidate profile based on a survey and stakeholder interviews to reflect community needs in the next chief. In addition to Dostal, three other finalists certified by the commission anticipated in interviews and participated in interviews, and met with the community February 7th. Jennifer Burkhofer, 44, a lieutenant at the Douglas County Sheriff's Office in Omaha. Jeff Cote, 49, a captain at the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department in Nevada. Tom Witten, chief deputy for the El Paso County Sheriff's Office in Texas Community Groups, participated in interview panels along with all members of the city's executive team. A selection committee, including a member of the Citizen Review Board, as laid out in city code, a six-person focus group from the police department, and a community group committed to strengthening community police relationships. Additional information about the police search process can be found on the city website, cityofcr.com slash chief. According to the news release, Pomerantz selected Dostal as the candidate whose qualifications most closely matched the community-created police chief candidate profile. I was proud to have four highly qualified candidates to consider out of a healthy pool of applicants, driven by a transparent, community-driven process, Pomerantz said. I appreciate the Civil Service Commission's work to present the certified list and all the community members who participated in the process and shared their feedback to me. Dostal's background. Dostal's entire career has been with the Cedar Rapids Police Department, where he started as a police officer in 1991. Since then, he has served as a patrol officer, field training officer, member of the special response team, bike patrol officer, and instructor and honor guard member. He was assigned to the Drug Enforcement Administration as a task force officer investigating federal drug cases. I am humbled by this opportunity, Dostal said in a statement. I appreciate City Manager Pomerantz's confidence in my ability to serve the police department, and I look forward to the outcome of tomorrow's council meeting.
When Dostal was promoted to sergeant in 2006, he oversaw the police officer reserve unit, served as a neighborhood association liaison, provided instruction with the Cedar Rapids Regional Police Academy, and supervised narcotics vice in the criminal investigation division. He has assisted in local, state, and federal drug investigations, during which he worked closely with the Cedar Rapids City Attorney, Lynn County Attorney, and a U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Iowa. As a lieutenant starting in 2016, he worked as a patrol shift commander and then oversaw the Criminal Investigation Division. That encompasses crimes against persons, property crimes, narcotics, vice, youth services, and intelligence. He was promoted to the rank of captain in 2023 and was most recently part of the Administrative Operations Division, where he has provided training and oversight for the Cedar Rapids Regional Police Academy and has overseen the Joint Communications Agency, Records, Animal Care, and Control, and Buildings and Grounds Divisions. Dostal holds a bachelor's degree from Cornell College. He graduated from the Police Executive Research Forum Senior Management Institute for Police in 2021. He has received several awards and recognitions, including Recruit Officer of the Year, Community Service Award, Commendation of Heroism, Police Officer of the Year, Employee of the Quarter, and the Enrique Kiki Camarina Award presented by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, recognizing Dostal's efforts to make Cedar Rapids a drug-free community. Preschool to be offered at every Iowa City Elementary School. Expansion this fall will allow access to 30% more children. By Grace King, Cedar Rapids Gazette, Iowa City. In expanding access to early childhood education, half-day preschool options will be available this fall at every elementary school in the Iowa City Community School District, including a free full-day option at three schools for families that qualify. Eliza Proctor, Executive Director of Elementary Schools in the Iowa City District, said the goal is to make sure every child has the opportunity to go to preschool. Preschool enrollment for August is open for families with of a child who is turning four on or before September 15th. A high-quality preschool experience is a great foundation to start their educational journey off in a play-based, rich and rich learning environment, Proctor said. Providing free access to preschool is an essential component in closing the achievement gap, educators say. Children who participate in early childhood programming have better health, social, emotional, and cognitive outcomes than those who are not able to take part in it. Students with access to four-year-old preschool are less likely to repeat a grade, less likely to be identified as having special needs, more prepared academically, and more likely to graduate from high school. With sixth grade being moved this fall from the district's elementary schools to its middle schools, there's more room for the elementary school's For preschool programs, Proctor said, a multi-year facility plan ensured classrooms were designed with preschool in mind at the elementary schools, she said. In February 2022, the Iowa City School Board approved the plan to move 6th graders out of elementary schools and into schools with 7th and 8th graders. Half-day morning preschool programs are from 7.55 a.m. to 10.45 a.m. Monday through Friday, Half-day preschool, afternoon preschool is from noon to 2.55 p.m., Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. 
Not all elementary schools will offer both, both morning and afternoon options. Additionally, some sites will also offer before and after school care for preschool students through Champions, a national child care provider for a fee. These are Borlaug, Hills, Kirkwood, Shimmick, and Elementary School, Wickham Elementary Schools. The district had begun piloting before and after school care for preschool programs in fall 2022 at two elementaries with the hope of expanding it to continue to make preschool more accessible to families who can't drop off or pick up children during work hours. Lemmy, Weber, and Grant Elementary Schools will offer full-day preschool. Students of eligible families are able to attend at no cost. For those who don't meet, meet income eligibility guidelines for full-day preschool, limited spots are available at a tuition rate of $650 a month. Full-day preschool is from 7.55 to 2.55 p.m. About 280 students in the Iowa City Community School District start kindergarten without any preschool experience, Proctor said. About 1,000 kindergartners enter Iowa City schools each fall, she said. For years, the Iowa City School Board, echoing other educators across the state, has asked the Iowa legislature to fully fund four-year-old preschool. Preschool currently is funded at half the state's per-pupil rate for full day, which is why programs are half-day. Proctor said it's something district leaders really hope for. Until then, we can't wait for other people to make decisions we know are best for kids. That's why we're jumping forward, she said. The expanded program will offer preschool to about 30% more children, she said. For more information about the Iowa City Community School District's preschool program, visit iowacityschools.org slash students hyphen families slash preschool. Lawmakers advance bill for districts to arm trained staff. Bill would also require some Iowa school districts to hire armed guards, school resource officers by Tom Barton, Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. Des Moines, Iowa House Republican lawmakers advanced a bill through subcommittee Monday to create a pathway for Iowa school districts to arm trained staff. The legislation would also require Iowa's largest school districts, among them Cedar Rapids, Davenport, Council Bluffs, Iowa City, and Sioux City to have at least one private security guard or school resource officer in each district high school. The fastest way to respond to school shooting is to have armed personnel on site, trained, and available to respond at a moment's notice, said Representative Phil Thompson, Republican Boone, lead sponsor of the bill and chair of the Iowa Public House Safety Committee. With this bill, we create a new permanent permit with a strict training regimen that will result in more men and women in school districts ready to respond to keep students safe, said Thompson, who voted Monday along with Representative Schuyler Wheeler, Republican Hall, to advance the bill to the full House Public Safety Committee. Wheeler also chairs the House Education Committee. The move comes in the wake of a shooting last month at Perry High School that killed 11-year-old Amir Jolif, a sixth grader, and Principal Dan Marburger. Six other people were injured in the shooting. The 17-year-old student who opened fire died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot. Marburger was critically injured during the January 4th attack, which began in the school's cafeteria as students were gathering for breakfast before class. The longtime Iowa principal has been hailed as a hero for sacrificing his life to save students. The day after the shooting, 
The State Department of Public Safety said Marburger acted selflessly and placed himself in harm's way in an apparent effort to protect his students. Law enforcement, family members, and school officials have said Marburger approached and tried to calm the teenage gunman, giving other students time to escape. Representative Beth Wessel Crochel, Democrat Ames, voted against the building bill, saying students would be less safe. Opponents said an armed teacher is much more likely to shoot a student bystander or be shot by responding law enforcement than to be an effective solution to an active shooter in a school. Wessel Crochel noted the only armed school resource officer at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, failed to confront the school shooter and stayed outside during the February 2018 massacre. People who are fully trained, fully trained, and that's their job, have a hard time protecting our students. We are asking teachers who have a completely different skill set to do this, she said. Rather, lawmakers should instead pursue an evidence-based intervention plan that addresses school gun violence, Wessel Crochel said. Most professional educational organizations have rejected the call to arm teachers, as has the National Association of School Resource Officers and the American Bar Association. Bill does not specify how guns would be secured. House Study Bill 675, titled the Students' First Safety Act, would create a new permit that allows employees at Iowa's public private schools and colleges to carry a firearm. Employees would be required to undergo a one-time in-person legal training, including training on qualified immunity, annual emergency medical training, and annual communication training approved by the Iowa Department of Public Safety. This bill would also require the Department of Public Safety to host an annual live scenario training and quarterly live firearm training for school employees of educational institutions that opt into the program. School staff issued a professional permit to carry weapons by the Department of Public Safety who are up to date on their training and would also be entitled to qualified immunity from criminal or civil liability for all damages incurred pursuant to the application of reasonable force at the place of employment. The bill does not specify which type of fire, firearms staff would be allowed to carry, who would supply the firearms to school staff, or how they would be secured and stored. The Spirit Lake and Cherokee School Districts rescinded, poli- rescinded policies last summer allowing trained staff to carry guns within the schools, which Iowa law already allows, to avoid being dropped by their insurance carrier after attempts to find other insurers failed. District officials cited the 2022 mass shooting at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, as one of the reasons for wanting to arm staff. The district's insurance carrier, EMC Insurance Company, said it insures districts that provide qualified law enforcement officers in schools, but that coverage does not extend to armed teachers or school staff. Some supporters of the bill said providing qualified immunity, insulating armed school staff from legal liability will help, while others said the insurance issue still needs to be addressed for districts that wish to move forward with selecting trained and equipping armed staff. Angela Olson, director of special projects for the Spirit Lake School District, said her district had armed staff for six months before rescinding the program after struggling to find an insurance carrier. Olson said having school resource officer in high school isn't enough. Catherine Lucas, a lawyer with the Iowa Department of Public Safety, told lawmakers the agency has a lot of unanswered questions about the bill, like what kind of weapons would school staff be allowed to carry, 
and who would do the required training for the armed school staff. HSB 675 also mandates mandates that school districts with a student population of at least 8,000 are required to have at least one armed private security guard or school resource officer in each district high school. School districts would not receive additional funding to cover the costs, but could apply for up to $50,000 in financial assistance through a new school security personnel grant program that would be established by the Iowa Department of Education. For districts with a student population of less than 8,000, it would be optimal to require armed security at high schools. Adding more guns to schools is not going to make me safer. Democrats and gun safety advocates panned the measure. The more guns that are coming into the equation, the more volatility and the more risk there is someone who will get hurt, said Hannah Hayes, a senior at Roosevelt High School in Des Moines, speaking on behalf of Students Demand Action, a student-led group advocating to end gun violence. Hayes said the bill fails to provide adequate training for armed school staff and that its provision of qualified immunity to armed school personnel raises concerns about accountability and oversight. As a student myself, I can tell you that adding more guns to schools is not going to make me safer, she said. It takes resources away from actual solutions such as mental health support, conflict resolution programs, and other preventable measures, and impacts the learning environment by making us feel like we're living in a war zone and not a school. Separate bill would bolster school security infrastructure. Parents, law enforcement, and school superintendents from rural communities, as well as gun rights activists, said that while school resource officers play an important role in Iowa schools, it's unrealistic to expect a single police officer is always going to be at the right place in just the right time should tragedy strike. They noted the Perry Community School District employs a full-time school resource officer and said rural districts do not have the same access to fully staffed police or sheriff's departments as those in urban Iowa. The people who were caring in our district love our children, know our our kids. They're willing to put their lives on the line to protect kids that are not their own, Spirit Lake Superintendent David Smith said. All I'm asking is is to give these people a chance to go home with their families, unlike the Perry principle. Panora Police Chief Matt Reising and superintendents of Panora Community Schools and Interstate 35 Community School District in Truro voiced similar support for the bill. Separate legislation, House Study Bill 692, aims to bolster school security infrastructure. The bill would require schools to complete a comprehensive review of their safety and emergency response plans and submit the review to law enforcement before the 2024-25 school year, create a fund to install radios capable of accessing the statewide interoperable communication system in all school buildings that don't currently have them. The radio system helped law enforcement coordinate their response to the shooting at Perry High School. Implement firearm detection software in three Iowa schools through a pilot program. Establish a task force to create recommended school safety standards in building code. Require schools starting in 2026 to meet these school safety standards before using any save funds on athletic facility projects. Our kids and teachers deserve the gold standard when it comes to safety in our schools, said Representative David Young. Van Meter, Republican Van Meter, who co-sponsored the bill with 
Representative Carter Nordman, Republican, Panora. Right now, these school safety building standards do not exist, Young said in a statement, but we can fix this and give our students, staff, and parents the safety they deserve. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Tuesday, February 13, 2024, on IRIS, IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Anita Lily Pete, 92, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully with her family February 9, 2024. Visitation, 10 to 11 a.m., Friday, February 16, 2024, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Funeral service, 11 a.m., Friday, February 16, 2024, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. A live stream of the funeral service may be accessed on the funeral home website under the obituary for Anita Pete under the video tab starting at 11 a.m., February 16, 2024, Internment Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Donald Frederick Nicholas, age 85, of Guernsey, died Saturday, February 10, 2024, at Grinnell Regional Medical Center with family at his side. A funeral service for Donald will be held at 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 16, 2024, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church, Brooklyn, with Father Scott Foley officiating. Burial will be in Calvary Cemetery, Brooklyn, with military honors. Visitation, 4 to 8 p.m., Thursday, February 15, 2024, at Kloster Funeral Home, Brooklyn. Memorials may be directed to the family. Velma Genevieve Watchter, 101, passed away February 10th at Windsor Senior Living in Sigourney, Iowa. A memorial fund has been established. Rosary, Thursday, 9.15 a.m., February 15th, 2024, at St. Mary Catholic Church in Sigourney. Visitation to follow until 11 a.m. Funeral Mass, Thursday, 11 a.m., February 15th, 2024, at St. Mary's Catholic Church, Burial, Pleasant Grove Cemetery. Viola Pospisil. Viola Pospisil passed away on February 10, 2024, at Mercy Medical Center, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Visitation, 9.30 to 11 a.m., Thursday, February 15, 2024, St. John's Catholic Church, Mount Vernon, Iowa. Funeral Mass, 11 a.m., Thursday, February 15, 2024, at the church with luncheon to follow. Burial, Lisbon Cemetery, Lisbon, Iowa. Wilma Glandorf of Williamsburg and formerly of Cedar Rapids died Sunday, February 11, 2024 at the Highland Ridge Care Center in Williamsburg at the age of 98. A celebration of life graveside service will be 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 17, 2024 at Emanuel Lutheran Cemetery in rural Williamsburg. A memorial fund has been established for Emanuel Lutheran Church or Iowa City Hospice. Messages may be left at www.powellfuneralhomes.com. Powell Funeral Home in Williamsburg is caring for Wilma and her family. And now for some sports. Solving a postseason puzzle with girls basketball, Cascade aims to reverse its recent tournament fortunes against Beckman by Jeff Linder. The girls' basketball series between Cascade and Dyersville Beckman has been decidedly pro-Cougars, except for the postseason. 
lately anyway. The underdog Blazers entered the Cougars season in 2021, then did it again in 2023. Those are two of Beckman's three wins against its Dubuque County rival against 12 losses in the past decade. Those two teams meet again in Class 2A regional quarterfinals tonight. Tip-off is 7 p.m. at Cascade High School. The 11th-ranked Cougars, 14-6, edged Beckman, 8-14, twice this season. Here are the area's five best games of the night, 2A and 1A quarterfinals, all of which tip off at 7 p.m. In Class 1A, East Buchanan, 15-7, at Edgewood-Colesburg, 17-4. Edco carries an eight-game winning streak with the Vikings topped East Beckman, East Buchanan, in a pair of competitive Tri-Rivers West Division encounters, 63-57 to and 60-51. to Ed Coe Sr., Audrey Helmricks, averaged a double-double, 15.8 points, 12.2 rebounds, and shoots at a 58.5% clip from the floor. East Buchanan has won five of its last six, including a 63-40 first-round win over Turkey Valley. Buck Sr., Laney Hogan, 16.7 points per game, is among the area leaders in assists, 4.8 per game, and steals, 5.3. Elkader Central, 15-6, and six, at Lansing Key, 17-5. and five. Add these two teams to the East Buchanan-Edco game listed above, and that makes for a balanced bottom bracket to this region, in which everybody could emerge to face number one, North Lynn, probably, in the regional final. They split their season series and tied for second place in the Upper Iowa Conference, a game behind MFL Marmac. Key is one of the most improved teams in the area, increasing its win count by 12 from last year, and Hawks have done it with startlingly young roster. Central is 10-1 and since the holiday break. Danville, 17-4 at Lone Tree, 19-3. Lone Tree is the champion of the Southeast Iowa Super Conference North Division. The Lions dropped their last two regular season games, but blitzed Winfield Mount Union 73-14 in the first round of regionals. Led by sophomore Finley Jacques, 16 points per game, all of Lone Tree's top five scorers are juniors and sophomores. In Class 2A, Dyersville Beckman, 8 and 14 at number 11 Cascade 14 and 6. Cascade earned 44 to 4, 40 and 43 to 38 regular season victories over Beckman. Junior Molly Rowling and sophomore Addison Freak are the Cougars' top weapons at 13.3 and 11.1 points respectively. Beckman counters with a senior duo of Reese Osterhaus, 13.8 points per game, and Kaylee Lehman, 9.8 points per game, 7.2 rebounds per game. Sumner Fredericksburg, 12-9 at MFL Marmac, 14-7. A Mammoth Challenge, a semifinal voyage to number one, Dyke New Hartford, the three-time defending champion, most likely awaits the winner. The champion of the Upper Iowa Conference, MFL Marmac, must contend with Sumner Fredericksburg, Post Isabel Elliott, who converts 61 points of her shot, 61 percent of her shots, and averages 21.1 points and 13.2 rebounds per game. Boys' rankings: 
North Lynn and Western Christian finished number one. Lynx and Wolfpack atop the final Class 1A and 2A poll by Jeff Johnson. The Gazette, North Lynn, and Western Christian finished number one. We'll see if that's the case next month at the state tournament, but the Lynx and Wolfpack are atop the respective classes in the final Class 1A and 2A rankings of the boys' basketball season. The Iowa High School Athletic Association released its weekly poll Monday afternoon. North Lynn took a 19-1 record into its Class 1A district opener last night at home against Highland. The Lynx were number one most of the season, reassuming the top spot with a with a win just over a week ago against the top-ranked Bellevue Marquette. Madrid, 19-2, and and Marquette, 12-1, are second and third, respectively, in the final 1A rankings. Kyoto, 21-0, is sixth. South Iowa Cedar League mate Linville Sully, 20-1, seventh. And Lansing Key, 19-2, is tenth. In fact, the entire poll in 1A stayed the same as last week. There was minimal movement in the final 2A rankings, with Western Christian, 17-3, staying on top despite a 21-point loss last week, to Sioux Falls Christian, the top-ranked team in South Dakota's Class 2A, second-largest class rankings. Hudson, 20-2, remained in the second spot despite also losing, albeit to Class 4A, number 1, Cedar Rapids Kennedy, 76-46. West Lynn, 20-1, Underwood, 21-0, and Pella Christian, 16-5, stayed 3rd, 4th, and 5th, respectively. Monticello, 18-2, and two, inched up two spots to seventh. River Valley Conference rival Cascade, 16-4, and four, joined the 2A poll for the first time this season at number 10. There will be one more set of rankings for Class 4A and 3A next week. Kennedy, 20-0, and, and Clear Lake, 19-0, remain top-ranked in those classes. Seven of the last week's top 10 in 4A lost last week. All remained in this week's rankings, minus Waukee Northwest. Iowa City West, 17-2, stayed second despite losing to Kennedy, 71-57. West Des Moines Valley, 14-5, remained third despite losing to Ankeny, 76-72. Cedar Falls, 16-3, moved from 6th to 5th after an impressive 55-37 win last week over Dubuque Senior, 16-2, which fell from 5th to 7th. Class 3A saw equal volatility as it has all season. Decora, 18-2, was the big mover, going from 5th to 2nd after a 79-76 win at Waverly Shell Rock. The Gohawks, 16-3, stayed at number 3. Solon, 18-1, slipped from 4th to 5th after a 2-point loss to Williamsburg. Marion, 15-5, Stayed steady at 6th after a week that saw it lose to Waverly, Shell Rock, and beat Clear Creek, Amana. Events of area interest. Today's sports basketball. Xavier at Kennedy, 7.30 p.m. Liberty at Washington, 7.30 p.m. Jefferson at City High, 7.30 p.m. Prairie at Iowa City West, 7.30 p.m. Dubuque Wallert at Linmar, 7.30 p.m. Marion at Williamsburg, 7.15 p.m. Girls Basketball, Class 1A and 2A Regionals, Men's Basketball, Iowa State at Cincinnati at 6 p.m. 
On the radio, men's basketball, Iowa State at Cincinnati, 6 p.m., KGYM. Local talk shows, Tom, Bromelkamp Show, 6.30 a.m., KGYM. Gym class, 3 p.m., KGYM. Spencer on Sports, 4 p.m., KGYM. In the Boys Iowa High School Athletic Association ranking, for Class 4A, number one, Cedar Rapids Kennedy, number two, Iowa City West, number three, West Des Moines Valley, number four, Sioux City East, number five, Cedar Falls, number six, Waukee, number seven, Dubuque Senior, number eight, Ankeny, number nine, Pleasant Valley, number 10, Ankeny Centennial, dropped out, Waukee Northwest. Class 3A, number one, Clear Lake, 19 and 0, Decorah, 18 and 2, Waverly Shellrock is number three with 16 and three. Number four is Adele DeSoto Minburn with 17 and two. Number five, Solon, 18 and one. Number six, Marion, 15 and five. Number seven, Winterset, 13 and eight. Number eight, MOC Foley Valley, 18 and three. Number nine, Davenport Assumption, 11 and eight. Number 10, Pella, 11 and eight. Dropped out, Huxley Ballard, and Clear Creek Amana. Class 2A, number one is Western Christian with 17 and 3. Number two is Hudson, 20 and 2. Number three, West Lyon at 20 and 1. Number four, Underwood at 21 and 0. Number five is Pella Christian, 16 and 5. Number six is West Burlington, 19 and 0. Number seven, Monticello, 18 and 2. Number eight, Trainer, 18 and 3. Number nine, Carol Kemper, 17 and 3. Cascade is number 10 with 16 and 4. Dropped out is Grundy Center. Class 1A, number one is North Lynn with 19 and 1. Number two, Madrid at 19 and 2. Number three, Bellevue Marquette at 21 and 1. Number four, Lake Mills at 20 and 1. Number five, Winfield Mount Union, 16 and 2. Number six, Kyoto at 20 and 1, 0. Number seven, Linville Sully, 20 and 1. Number eight, North Union, 18 and 3. Number nine, East Mills at 19 and 1. And number 10, Lansing Key at 19 and 2. In girls basketball tonight, the Class 2A Regional Quarterfinals, all games at 7 p.m. In Region 1, Waterloo Columbus, 6 and 16 at Dyke New Hartford, 19 and 2. Sumner Fredericksburg, 12 and 9, at MFL Marmac, 14 and 7. South Winnesheek, 7 and 15, at Applington Parkersburg, 17 and 4. Hudson, 12 and 10, is at Jessup, 16 and 5. In Region 4, Durant, 10 and 12, at Iowa City Regina, 17 and 4. Bellevue, 7 and 12, at Makokota Valley, 13 and 8. Dyersville Beckman, 18 and four, 8 and 14, at Cascade, 14 and 6. Albernet, 9 and 12, is at Northeast, 14 and 8. Class 1A Regional Quarterfinals, all games also at 7 p.m. Bellevue Marquette, 11 and 2, at North Lynn, 20 and 1. Midland, 15 and 8, at Dunkerton, 17 and 5. East Buchanan, 15 and 7, at Edgewood Colesburg, 17 and 4. El Cater Central, 15 and 6, is at Lansing Key, 17 and 5. In Region 2, Fort Dodge St. Edmunds, 5 and 16, at Newell Fonda, 
19 and 2. Ackley, AGWSR, 11 and 9, at Conrad, BCLUW, at 14 and 8. Garwin, GMG, 11 and 10, is at Coon Rapids, Bayard, 11 and 18 and 3. North, Tama, 10 and 10, is at HLV, 10 and 9. In Region 3, Seymour, 11 and 8, at Marsendale St. Mary's, 15 and 6. Sigourney, 18 and 4, versus Melcher Dallas, 18 and 3, at Liberty Center. Bedford, 10 and 12, is at Fremont Mills, 21 and, 1, 21 and 0. Mount Air, 15 and 6, is at Lamoni, 15 and 5. In Region 7, Easton Valley, 10 and 12 at Calamus Wheatland, 21 and 1. North Cedar, 5 and 18 is at Springville, 17 and 6. Iowa Valley, 11 and 12 is at Linville Sully, 18 and 3. Danville, 17 and 4 is at Lone Tree, 19 and 3. In Region 8, Waco, 13 and 9 is at Montezuma, 17 and 4. English Valleys, 14 and 8 is at Fort Madison Trinity, Holy Trinity, 19 and 2. Orient Maxburg 11 and 10 is at Anita CAM 19 and 2 and Wayne 12 and 10 is at Mormon Trail 12 to 6. On the Iowa Today page, a bill would ban ranked choice voting. Separate bill would require district level elections of supervisors in large counties. Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau. Iowa lawmakers advanced a pair of bills Monday that would make a raft of changes to elections, including banning ranked choice voting, standardizing training, and limiting ballot eligibility challenges for federal candidates. The bill, with the more significant changes of the two, Senate Study Bill 3161, would do the following. It would limit challenges of petitions of federal candidates to the legal sufficiency of the petition or the residency, age, or citizenship requirements of the candidate. Create a pilot program for a third party to maintain Iowa's voter database. Ban ranked voting. Bank, ban ranked choice voting. Ban the use of ballot drop boxes in the state require that absentee ballots be received by a county auditor's office the day before the election and allow the auditor to begin mailing absentee ballots two days earlier. The bill was passed out of a Senate subcommittee Monday by the two Republican members. Democratic Senator Janice Weiner, Iowa City, did not vote to advance the bill. Senator Jason Schultz, Republican Schleswig, the chair of the Senate State Government Committee and sponsor of the two bills said the bill was a settling of our election procedures and intended to instill trust in Iowa's election process. We think we've gotten 80-90% of the way there, he said. Iowa's elections are rated among the top five in the country as far as reliability and integrity, and we plan on keeping that. The limit on eligibility challenges would make it impossible for individuals to lodge challenges to former President Donald Trump's place on the election ballot on the grounds that he incited an insurrection, as groups in other states have done. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled Trump ineligible to be on the state's primary ballot because of such a challenge. The U.S. Supreme Court will decide on an appeal to that decision. 
The justices heard oral arguments on the case last week. Schultz said the provision is to ensure that there are no similar ballot changes in Iowa. A separate bill, Senate bill, Senate Study Bill 3165, would require election workers to be trained before each election rather than only primary and general elections. It would also direct Iowa's Secretary of State to adopt statewide rules for election worker training. In the case of a recount, the bill would also require a recount board to include a report of its findings, including a full tally of ballots reviewed by the board. District-level election of supervisors. Iowa lawmakers advanced a bill that would require Iowa's five biggest counties to elect their boards of supervisors by voters in geographic districts rather than by county at large. Currently, Iowa counties use one of three representation plans for the Board of Supervisors. Voters can bring a petition for a ballot measure in order to change the plan. Plan 1. Each supervisor is elected at large with no district requirements. Plan 2. The county is split into equal population districts, and representatives from these districts are elected by voters in the whole county. Plan 3. The county is split into equal population districts and representatives from those districts are elected by voters in the districts. Senate File 2283 would require that counties with a population of more than 125,000 use Plan 3. The rule would affect Polk, Lynn, Scott, Johnson, and Black Hawk counties. Polk and Lynn counties already use Plan 3, while the other counties use Plan 1. Lucas Beanken, a lobbyist for state associations representing counties and county supervisors, said counties are opposed to the bill and they would prefer the representation plan to be decided by voters. But rural residents of large counties like Blackhawk and Johnson said that they do not have a proper representation on those boards where members largely live in urban centers. The bill advanced out of Senate subcommittee by two Republican members, while the Democratic member did not vote to advance the bill. Library supporters oppose proposal. City library officials and supporters from across Iowa again descended upon the Iowa Capitol to express opposition to legislation that would change library staffing and funding operations. The latest proposal is more narrowly focused than previous bills that have been considered by state lawmakers this session. Senate Study Bill 3168 would allow a city council to change and oversee the process of hiring a library director and determine how to use some library funds without a public referendum. This proposal is different from other bills, which would would also would give city councils the authority to change even more library operations, including book selection, without a public vote. The two Republicans on the subcommittee panel for Senate Study Bill 3168, Senators Jesse Green of Boone and Mike Klimish of Spillville, signed off on advancing it to the full Senate Local Government Committee. Senator Janice Weiner of Iowa City declined to sign off on the bill. Green said this proposal was introduced to ensure city council members have more input into the hiring of library directors. Library officials and advocates said while they appreciated that this bill is more limited in scope than others introduced this season, they fear it will nonetheless open the doors to bipartisan political intrusion on library operations. Changes proposed to asset forfeiture. 
All assets seized by law enforcement officials would be part of a criminal forfeiture process and would be returned to the individual unless that person is convicted under legislation being considered by state lawmakers. House Study Bill 634 is model legislation from the conservative, libertarian-minded Institute for Justice. The organization said such policy is needed to better balance the rights of Iowa property owners with law enforcement's ability to seize property during investigations. The Iowa County Attorneys Association expressed strong opposition to the proposal. The two Republicans on the subcommittee panel, Representatives Phil Thompson of Boone and Bill Gustafson of Des Moines, signed off on advancing the proposal to the full House Public Safety Committee. Legal Protections for Pesticide Makers Pesticide manufacturers could not be sued for failing to alert people of potential health risks if the product has a federally approved warning label under legislation advanced by the Iowa Senate Republicans on Monday. Senate Study Bill 3163 was proposed by Bayer, a pharmaceutical and chemical company that produces Roundup, a herbicide with the main ingredient glyphosate that is commonly used by growers of corn and soybeans, Iowa's most abundant crops. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has determined that glyphosate products used according to label directions do not result in health risks. During the hearing, agricultural and business groups supported the proposed legislation while individual farmers spoke in opposition. Republican Senators Jeff Edler of State Center and Mark Costello of Imogene, both farmers, signed off on advancing the bill to the full Senate Agriculture Committee while Democratic Senator Bill Dotler of Waterloo declined to support it. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Tuesday, February 13, 2024. I'm your reader, Denise. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.
This is Tom Hatton with an Irish short take from the book A Culinary History of Iowa. An article we're reading now is entitled Manna Colonies Maintain Rich History in Iowa. The Icarians weren't the only communal society to play a role in Iowa's culinary history. The famous Manna Colonies in eastern Iowa were also founded on communal principles, but unlike the Icarians, the Amanas had a strong religious component. By the 1700s, people across northern Europe had become dissatisfied with the rituals and intellectualism of the Lutheran Church and had begun to rebel and separate from the Church. Adherents to a new faith called the Community of True Inspiration formed their own self-reliant communities. Known as the Inspirationists, these men and women and their families found refuge in central Germany. Persecution and an economic depression in Germany in the 1830s, however, forced the community to search for a new home. Hundreds of inspirationists immigrated to America in 1843-44 in search of religious freedom. They pooled their resources and established a community named Ebenezer near modern-day Buffalo, New York. All property was held in common. Farms and factories were established, and the community of nearly 1,200 people prospered. When more farmland was needed for the growing community, the inspirationists looked to Iowa, where attractively priced land was available. A committee was sent to inspect land in Iowa in the mid-1850s. The Iowa River Valley proved particularly promising. Here, the men found acres of rich soil, good timber, water, limestone, sandstone, and clay necessary for establishing a new community. Leaders chose the name Amana, meaning Remain True, from Song of Solomon 4.8. Starting in 1855, six villages were established a mile or two apart, including Amana, East Amana, West Amana, South Amana, High Amana, and Middle Amana. The village of Homestead was added in 1861, giving the Amana colonies access to the railroad. Each village had its own school, farm, and craft industries to make it virtually self-sufficient. The communal way of life was continued in Amana, much like it had been in Ebenezer. All property was held in common. Families were assigned housing in buildings owned by the Amana Society. Each individual worked at a designated job. Religious life was the strong unifying factor. In the seven villages, residents received a home, medical care, meals, all household necessities, and schooling for their children. Property and resources were shared. Men and women were assigned jobs by the village council of brethren. No one received a wage. Farming and the production of wool and calico supported the community. But village enterprises, from clockmaking to brewing, were vital. Well-crafted products became a hallmark of the Amana colonies, which are still known for exceptional wines and more. People were called to work before dawn by the gentle tolling of the bell in the village tower in Old Amana, where the pace of life was much different than today. More than 50 communal kitchens provided three meal, three daily meals, as well as mid-morning and mid-afternoon snacks to all colonists. These kitchens were operated by the women of the Amana colonies and were well supplied by the village smokehouse, bakery, ice house, and dairy, as well as the orchards, vineyards, and huge communal gardens maintained by the villagers. During the growing season, there was plenty of work to do in the gardens and kitchens, from planting and harvesting to preparing and storing vegetables from cabbage to turnips. Around 1900, for example, it wasn't unusual for the communal kitchens in just one Amana village to produce more than 400 gallons of sauerkraut. 
It took a lot of food and labor to sustain the villages within the Amana colonies. Children attended school six days a week, year-round, until age 14. Boys were then assigned jobs on the farm or in the craft shops, while girls were assigned to a communal kitchen or garden. Work and faith were often intertwined and were intertwined in the villages, where the inspirationists attended worship services 11 times per week. Times were changing by the early 20th century, however. Improved communications and transportation in the 1920s began to exert their influence on the Amana colonies. In addition, the collapse of the American economy following the stock market crash of October 1929 left no aspect of daily life untouched. The Great Depression and disastrous farm economy made the isolated communal life in Amana socially and economically impossible. In the early 1930s, Amana set aside its communal way of life. A strong desire on the part of the residents to maintain their community finally propelled propelled the change, according to Amana history shared by the Amana Colonies Convention and Visitors Bureau. By 1932, the communal way of life was seen as a barrier to achieving individual goals. Rather than leave or watch their children leave the community, the people of the Amana villages changed. Members voted to abandon the communal system and established the Amana Society Incorporated, a profit-sharing corporation to manage the farmland, mills, and larger enterprises. Private enterprise was encouraged. While this separated the economic aspect of the community from the church, the Amana Church Society continued to be the religious foundation of the community. Today, the seven villages of the Amana colonies are among the state's most popular tourist attractions. Declared a National Historic Landmark in 1965, the Amana colonies attract hundreds of thousands of visitors annually who come to experience a place where the past is cherished and hospitality is a way of life. The streets of the Amana colonies, lined with their historic brick, stone, and clapboard houses, their flower and vegetable gardens, and their lanterns and walkways, recall the Amana of yesterday. Many museums are available for tours, including the communal kitchen in Middle Amana, preserved just as it was on the day in 1932 when the last communal meal was served in the colony. The communal kitchen lets you step back in time. Guides explain kitchen routines and share insights on communal life. Guests can also enjoy a satisfying taste of Amana history and hospitality at the famous Ox Yoke Inn a full-service restaurant founded in 1940 in the village of Amana. The Ox Yoke Inn's nationally recognized reputation of fresh, quality food served family-style reflects the restaurant's old-world signature dishes. The Ox Yoke Inn serves traditional German and American favorites at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as on Sunday brunch buffet. Glimpses of the past are also preserved in some of the gardens in the Amana colonies. With the passing of the Old Order in 1932, the number of the Society's large vegetable gardens and orchards dwindled, but Larry Reddick and his wife Wilma still grow some of the colony's heirloom varieties in their fourth-generation South Amana vegetable garden. In 1980, they founded a seed bank to preserve heirloom plants for the future generations. In his 2013 book, Gardening the Amana Way, Reddick's chapters on modern vegetable and flower gardening in today's Amana colonies showcase his cottage and the meadow gardens. 
now listed with the Smithsonian's Archives of American Gardens. Old intermingles with new across Reddick's Gardens as heirloom lettuce keeps company with the latest cucumber variety. It's a living tribute to the unique history of Amanda colonies and one of America's longest-lived communal societies. And that was an excerpt from A Culinary, culinary History of Iowa by Darcy Doherty, Malsey, and other offbeat stuff by Eric Jones, Dan Coffey, and Barrett Thorkelson. Some would call 88-year-old Sally Jackson a lucky senior. A few years ago, a family member offered to move in and care for Sally so that she wouldn't have to leave the comfort of her own home. But soon after, one of Sally's neighbors, Carol, paid a visit, unannounced. Something wasn't quite right. Sally's demeanor and physical appearance had changed. Luckily, Carol was aware of warning signs that might signal elder abuse. Such as bruises, poor hygiene, isolation, depression, appearing withdrawn or unusually quiet, as if to hide something. When victimized, elderly people often feel ashamed, confused. But an alert neighbor helped Sally. Not all abused seniors are as lucky as Sally Jackson. McGruff the Crime Dog here. The National Crime Prevention Council wants to help you and your loved ones prevent elder abuse. Know what to look for. Know how to report it to local law enforcement agencies. To learn more, go to ncpc.org forward slash seniors. That's ncpc.org slash seniors. A message from the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Department of Justice.